You've been lied to, but you don't know how. You've searched, you've struggled, you've cried out. You want the truth, but where is it? You've wandered, you've fought, you've strived, and you have not been satisfied. What is truth? Where is truth? Who is truth? The kingdom of God. Mind control. The last days. Higher dimensions. Unity. The power of faith. Discovering the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. God has promised that he will hide us under his feathers and under his wings we will trust. His truth shall be our shield and our buckler. Discovering the Truth with Dan Devon is the premier program that is designed to center you on the kingdom of God, to equip you with faith in Jesus Christ, and to unveil the truth behind the lies. This program is designed to show you how to become more than you have ever imagined through the power of truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And now, prepare for your host, Dan Duvall. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. This program is designed to center you on the kingdom of God to equip you with faith in Jesus Christ and to unveil the truth behind the lies. This program is a production of Bride Ministries. And you can find us at www.bridemovement.com and, of course, www.thefireplacechurch.org. And I want to speak a word of encouragement here, guys. Look, when we established the Fireplace Church, we did so for a reason. We wanted a platform for ongoing community. This is a podcast. People want to connect to this ministry all the time. They, we, we get the letters. How can we connect? How can we be a part of what Bride Ministries is doing? You know, well, how do you connect with your local church? You show up. You actually attend. Um, you meet people. People meet you. Uh, you attend their courses. You meet their leaders. Their leaders meet you. You know, at Bride Ministries, we have a unique ministry in that we have no local fellowship. We, we just don't. I mean, I hoping, you know, that that's going to open up. Maybe that'll be one of the uh, later phases that God unpacks for us. It's some kind of local ministry meeting, venue session and all that, whatever. But for now, we are an internet-based ministry. And so we get all these letters, right? Do you have any options for fellowship? Where can I go to church? This, that, and so forth. We built the Fireplace Church for that reason, because it's not just a production. It's a platform for community. And, you know, here's the unfortunate fact. Guys, the unfortunate fact is that most of you don't use it. You know, it's it, it's there for you, for those of you that want community, that want fellowship, that are lonely, or that are not lonely and just want to be around kingdom-minded people that are talking kingdom, that are, that are going to the cutting edge, you know. And, 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 and many of you, what we have found, instead of going to join us at these live services where you can actually meet people, meet leaders, meet volunteers, all that, you are just watching our archives like you would any other podcast or whatever. You never take advantage of the platform that's been built. And so I want to encourage you, just like 
you are going to connect with a local body by showing up. Well, you're going to connect with us by showing up too. You know, sometimes people write me, they say, you know, how can I get more involved and help you, Dan Duvall? I'd like to do this, or I'd like to associate this project with Bride Ministries. Why don't you show up in our discipleship courses? Why don't you show up at the Fireplace Church? Say hi. You know, and so there is a way that we can get to know people, um, though it's limited. And it's through these venues. So I want to invite you. I want to encourage you. Guys, if you are identifying with Bride Ministries, Show up at the Fireplace Church at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on Sundays. We'd love to see you there. Um, and, and we're really believing God for growth of our live services this year. And so I'm just going to talk about it. I'm going to invite you. I'm going to encourage you. You know, it's not the worst thing in the world to consume <laughs> our e-church at the time it's actually airing live and not in the archives. And, and, and that's my word of encouragement to you. You know, um, moving on beyond that, we are starting discipleship courses this week. We're very excited about that. I do want to give an update. You know, earlier, I, I forget which podcast it was in the beginning. You know, I, I suggested, hey, I want to be very aggressive about a conferencing schedule this year. And I, we want to do conferences every month. Um, well, I, don't, I just don't know that we're going to be able to do that, <laughs> particularly in the month of February. But I will say that the next conference I anticipate having is going to be at the Advanced Spiritual Warfare Number 2 conference again, where we got into freedom from draconian and reptilian genetics, also uh, human persecutors and you know redemption of timelines and going really deep in allowing for questions and conversation to occur around these subjects, also giving unique material. You're just not going to get anywhere else because we've gotten a lot of our facts and information uh, from the front lines, from the survivors that encountered these things. And you know where else are you going to get it? Uh, so... I just want to, you know, throw that out there that I do believe will be coming up. And I think I'm going to be designing a conference to focus in on the subject of sheep nations. At our last conference, Mysteries of the Human Spirit, which blessed a lot of lives. We got a number of testimonies from that really, really encouraging for us. Um, there was so much uh, uh, interest in the, a, a conference on sheep nations that I do believe I will be doing that. And it'll be a public conference. Anyone will be able to sign up for that. And so um, possibly after I get back from Australia in April or so, we will look at doing a conference on sheep nations and what they are, what that means. Um, a lot of eschatology around that uh, deep, deep Bible study getting into material that I uh, tackle in kingdom government and the promise of sheep nations, but really haven't spent much time talking about. You know, I, I wrote this giant book, over 450 pages in print, or no, I shouldn't say over. It's it's like 445 pages, but I, I haven't talked about most of it. I, I literally have not begun to unpack the material in that book on this podcast or elsewhere. And so really excited about that. I do want to encourage you guys. Look, Bride Ministries is going places. We have vision to have humongous impact. We have vision to teach, to train, to grow different platforms. Uh, we, we still have on the bucket for creation, the, the media studio, the um, DID coaching school. I mean, huge projects. Helping survivors, we want to do it. We would love to do it. We want to continue to do what we are committing to. Um, Folks, we can't do it without you right now. I, I've talked a lot about how I want to pair business with ministry. I want to underwrite ministry with real business. You know, and if I have to, you know, build a business between just myself and a few close partners, then that's what will happen. But you know, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. I, I, I can't fund what I want to do uh, from business ventures. You know, we have like so many. So I, I mean, I think our waiting list is over fifty. How fast is that waiting list moving? Not not very fast at all. 
And um, how is it going to move faster? If we have more resources, we can help more people. And, and that's just a simple fact of the matter. Uh, you know, we have ongoing costs. We have staff now. This is not a one-man operation. There's a lot that's going on behind the scenes um, to allow for us to do as much as possible with what we have. But we are limited. Uh, and, and, and so I want to encourage you guys, if you find Bride Ministries to be inspiring you, if you find that you are identifying with the message that we are putting forth, if you have a heart for the people that we are trying to help, I want to encourage you, don't let the devil lie to you. Uh, giving is a kingdom principle. But I do want to encourage those of you that have had a prick from the Lord that have, you know, said, you know, well, maybe one day I'll support what they're trying to do. You know, now's the time, guys. And the Bible is very clear. As we give, it will be given unto us. He who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. Uh, I'm a big sower and a big giver. And I have seen the blessing of the Lord in my personal life from that. And I want to encourage you guys, look, um, we are here. We have donate buttons at bridemovement.com, thefireplacechurch.org. We have a P.O. box at 6173 uh, Texarkana, Texas. That's our new P.O. box, P.O. box 6173 Texarkana, Texas 75505. Write us, go on a website, click a button, support us. Folks, help us to get to that next level this year because we're believing God for big things. And I do not want to back up off of what God has called us to. I want to keep pushing the envelope. And with your help, we will. With that said, um, we're going to get into the program. We're going to have a really awesome conversation with Arthur Burke, a guest I haven't on, had on this program yet, but who is definitely um, a pioneer in many respects. And so we're going to be right back with him. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. And today we're going to be having a conversation with a gentleman I have not had the privilege of having on my program before. But um, introducing him to the Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall platform today. And I've actually been really looking forward to this interview because we're going to be able to get into a lot of things um, and a lot of questions that uh, I find are going to be highly redemptive for you, those of you that are listening, and uh, very educational. 
Um, I am going to be talking today with Arthur Burke, who is the founder of the Sapphire Leadership Group. He describes himself as a learner and a worshiper. He is a pioneer in the areas of inner healing and deliverance and has brought a language to the subject of the ministry to the human spirit that, well, let's just be honest, many are just catching up with now. He's the author of a number of books, including Blessing Your Spirit, Blessing Your Soul, and Pure Joy. He also has a number of CD sets covering a broad range of subjects. And you can find him at www.theslg.com. And for you German speakers out there, they have a website at www.sapphireaustria.com. You know, Arthur, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, welcome to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Thank you so much. It's good to be with a kindred spirit who has walked a hard journey and a glorious journey. <laughs> well, you know, hard doesn't really stop. It's just like a, a, the, the abiding state, right? <laughs> we use the language of productive pain versus unproductive pain. Very few people have an easy chair life, and we get to choose to some degree whether the pain we're in is useless or productive. And you and I have embraced a fair amount of productive pain in our day. Well, you know what? I agree with that. That's This is a really, really positive way to look at it. You know, Arthur, um, when, when I began working with survivors, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I met a number of people that, that I sat down with that had been through your materials. Uh, materials... Um, on how to bless their own human spirit um, and, and other materials that you had covered, you know, in different areas of the conversation around inner healing and identity and all of that. And one of the things that I was amazed by is that when I would get to know them and um, even begin, and, and, and Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall, a lot of our audience is familiar with the language around association a lot of our mm -hmm. listeners understand what you know alters are and, and parts and, and why fragmentation happens. So I'm going to be a bit loose with my language here. But, you know, I found that they had very strong spirits who would actually uh, come out and, and even at times introduce themselves to me and say, Hey, Daniel, I am so-and-so spirit. And, they, you know, they would be uh, joyful and have the, you know, presence of the Lord on them. And I was scratching my head thinking when I f this first began to happen, like, oh, are you confused? I think you're just a part that is identifying more with God than some of the other ones. Until I began to understand the whole revelation around the human spirit, what it is and how that works. And it really began to come into full view for me over time. But... You know, what I found was this pattern that if people had come across your materials, they had a strong spirit, even if other areas of their life were broken. And um, I was like, well, you know what? If I'm looking at this fruit now, I, I know that this is a guy that the Lord has given some really solid revelation to, which is one of the reasons why I'm excited to have you on the program. Now, you've been pioneering in the area of ministry to the human spirit for a long time, and I want to begin by letting you tell us a bit of your testimony and how God even led you into this area. I don't think led is the right word. Tricked, I think, would be a better word. <laughs> oh, no. 
We had one of our trusted teams say, I received a word from the Lord. I think it's something for you to unpack. And it was cryptic. It's talking about the redemptive gifts of individuals. And it said, the prophet gets light, the giver brings life, and the mercy gift brings alignment. And that sounds pithy. We have no idea what it means. And I gathered a few people together. We met in somebody's home and were working through that, trying to figure out what it meant. And in the process of doing that, looking at the issue of light, we were became aware that the human spirit is light, that the human spirit seems to be made of the same light that God is. Very new thought, again, one that we don't have a so what for. And none of the none of us in the room that day can remember what happened next. But somehow I ended up in the other room with one of the ladies speaking to the light of her spirit some blessings. God just hijacked my mouth. There was nothing there that was in my soul to address this issue. And at the end of that time, she was dramatically different. I was a bit shaken because it was completely out of my theological frame of reference. And I remember saying to her very overtly when we get a, got done, don't you ever tell anybody about this. <laughs> well, I'm a biblicist, and I left that event saying, okay, human spirit, um, I've got to have a file. Let's see. Oh, yes, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Yep, okay, mm -hmm. that's one end. Um, Paul, let's see, yes, he said that certain things can only be understood when our spirit is regenerated. Yeah, okay, so that's the beginning. So I got the beginning and the end, and the rest of the file, um, um, it, it was shocking. I had nothing in my human file, human spirit file, except the beginning and the end. I was horrified. I grew up in church. I've been in church since nine months before I was born. And to not have a file on the human spirit was just shocking. So I went home, got out my Bible, and we found about 150 verses on the human spirit. And I was stunned, staggered, that we had no theology of the human spirit, none, except the two bookends. And that began my journey of digging into the book and saying, how does this work? We have, our say, we have a saying in our company that the single most important theological question of all time is, so what? You know, what does it look like on Monday morning? Something can be absolutely true, but if you can't use it, it's pointless. I'm told that E equals MC squared is the key to nuclear power. That may be completely true, but I can't build a nuclear submarine in my backyard. I don't have a so what. So we looked at the human spirit. We tried to develop a theology, and then we tried to develop a practice and say, what do we do? What does it look like? If these things are true, how do we look different on Monday morning now that we know them. And that began a journey of a whole lot of exploration. We have a great number of people that are blessed with a guinea pig anointing, and they allow me to bumble around and experiment with my half-baked potatoes, and here we are. Okay. Fascinating. Um, <sighs> tricked. Wow. Okay. Now, let, let me ask this question, um, because this, this conversation for me go, went hand in hand. 
I didn't really get ministry to the humans. I always knew that there was a human spirit since Bible school because they actually taught the three-part man, you know, mm-hmm. that God has mm-hmm. created us according to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, a spirit, soul, yep. and body. So I got that, yep. and, and I had even, you know, walked out into, you know, some clarification on how the spirit works, but I never really looked at my own spirit um, as conscious and, and, and self-aware. I, I just thought of it as like an energy ball or something. Like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, until I began to get into the whole area of working with those that were that are survivors, meeting some that had come across your materials who had, you know, their spirits present um, to me and, and communicate very straightforwardly. Like, hey, I'm, I'm this. And, and so I kind of put the two together. And I know that you have also been roped into this whole ministry to survivors. How did that happen for you? Again, very accidentally, God used the hook of love. There was a friend of ours who was an intercessor on the team, and she began to have some strange problems. We prayed for her. We warred for her. We cast out a whole bunch of demons that existed and probably a bunch that never did. And at the end of the day, our best efforts were utterly inadequate to uh, care for her. And that's when we began to widen the frame, look around, say, what else is there? And we're able to learn from other people about DID. And there were so few people talking about it 15 years ago, 20 years ago now, 15 years ago, that very quickly others began coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, well, I've got some thinking like that. And all of a sudden we found ourselves surrounded by survivor, or not survivors, but people that were DID at first, and then we learned that other term, SRA, and thought, wow, never knew this world existed, but there's quite a few out there. Got it. Okay, so before we get into uh, some of the d- deeper stuff that I, I really want to talk about with you, I want to ask this. How did you first conclude that the redemptive gifts found in Romans 12 align with what are known as the seven portions of the human spirit. Can you first of all explain seven portions of the human spirit as you understand it, and then um, how that relates to Romans 12 in your understanding? Well, I'm going to change the order because we were working with the Romans 12 material many years before. Our understanding is that those seven gifts are the template that God uses to create the human soul, that everybody, believer or unbeliever, has one of those. And it's kind of like that if you look at the chassis on the assembly line, you say that's a car and that's a tractor and that's a bus and that's a locomotive. The chassis determines the build-out. So we had been working with the human soul in terms of that identity platform for many years before we got engaged with the human spirit. And then if you take the concept of light, you run it through a prism that breaks down into the seven different colors of light. And right now, I don't think I can fully recreate the process of revelation that came down, but 
our model at present says that the human soul has one of those redemptive gifts, but the human spirit has all seven. And we picture it perhaps like a carousel as your spirit rotates so that the one that is needed for the spiritual task is available, is in front for the moment. But right now, that's been so many years ago, so much water under the bridge that I can't recreate the hmm. lab experience that led us to that conclusion. I get it. Okay. And that's, and, and so let me follow it up with this question. Mm-hmm. The so uh, let me back up and okay. put put one other piece in there. I'm a businessman, and our metric is very pointed, measurable, verifiable, sustained change. So goosebumps, warm fuzzies, uh, prophetic words, they don't count. We take an idea that we call a half-baked potato. We usually test it on ourselves. If we get some transformation, then we put it out for beta testing to people that are fairly familiar with our stuff, but we don't consider an idea to be valid until the second generation has implemented it. People that don't know me, that heard about it from somebody, and they tried it out on their own and got consistent results. So consistent results, measurable, verifiable, and sustained change. When I talk to an individual who has absolutely no frame of reference for the redemptive gifts, never heard the term, has no idea where I'm going, even a survivor, and I speak to them and say, can I speak to the teacher portion of your spirit? Can he come to the front? And somebody inside responds to that term, or then I speak to the mercy portion and somebody else responds. That consistency of response by human spirits when the soul of the individual has no frame of reference for it gives us some credibility in my eyes. Well, and, and, you know, I can verify that because I use, you know, since I met um, another individual I collaborate with who uses that approach and explained it to me, you know, I, I found the same consistency. Absolutely. Not only in others, but then also in myself. And this actually leads me to my next question. And, and, and I'm going to lead this off with a, with a testimony that I've shared on my own program at least once. And um, it has to do with, you know, my own human spirit. Because I had begun doing some of this um, you know, ministry to the human spirit like you're talking about. Speaking to the human spirit, blessing the human spirit. Um, even working with different portions of the, you know, the human spirit in survivors and uh, getting those blessed, strong, out of, and we'll get into this later, hopefully, but regions of captivity and other types of bondages they were being held captive to. And, and then I, I, I just had this day where I was like, hmm, I wonder if I can speak to all these people and, and their spirits, what would happen if I tried to talk to my own spirit? Because I'm a spirit, soul and body, therefore I must have one. So I did the experiment and I said, you know, Daniel Spirit, I invite you to come forward. Um, When I did that, it was really, really awkward because I began to actually feel intimidated. And that's just the right word. I felt very small as a soul. And it was like there was this 
giant, I mean, like 13 foot thing standing over me. And the first thing out of that I heard, you know, reverberating from my center, like, because that's where my spirit's voice was connecting to me from was, you know, I'm a very important person. And he, he began and really it's I began to go through and this was the rub. All of these things that I had been writing in my prayer journal that the Lord was telling me about myself and my calling that I was in disagreement with, Arthur. God mm-hmm. would tell me this and this and such and such, and I would write it down and I'd say, yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm self-deluded right now. Well, not necessarily. My spirit, when it came forward, was confessing that as present fact, as if it was totally in agreement with all of these things the Lord had been speaking. And then I had a revelation that my soul, I had an issue. I wasn't listening to God. And my spirit was. And um, so so that was my first encounter with my human spirit. And, and it was a really, really interesting and enlightening uh, event. Now, I, I want to turn it over to you because I want to let you tell us about how you have, you know, grown in awareness of your own spirit, how you and your spirit, you know, as a soul work together in ministry um, and what that looks like, even in response to like the different portions of your own spirit and how you understand that to play out. All right. And I'm going to take the invitation and muddy the waters just a little bit because it's not just spirit, soul, but it's spirit, soul, and body. We have found that a, the fractals of the human, the, well, the fractals of the redemptive gifts are reflected throughout many portions of our body. So the seven parts of your endocrine system, they parallel the redemptive gifts, for example. So with that background, which I'll come back to in a moment, the initial stages of working with my spirit were fairly primitive because our methodology was primitive. I had one of my prayer partners dialoguing with me because for me it works a lot easier with a second person. So they would call for this portion or that when they come to the front. And pretty readily we had four portions of my spirit respond and the question very simply was what do you do during the course of the day what's your role in daily life and they would explain uh, where their hand had been felt even though nobody had recognized the presence of the spirit some were very predictable and some were surprises that left us with three holdouts that were a challenge the mercy portion of my spirit was quite intriguing the most difficult to get in touch with would not respond when it was spoken to and we had no idea back then about portions of our spirit being captive or absent or whatnot that's a whole other story eventually my partner wrote an email so i'm at work doing my stuff i get an email and the subject line says to mercy I'm kind of blindsided. I open it, and the question is, Dear Mercy, I know you're there. What is it that you do during the course of the day? And almost before I finished reading the email, I heard a very 
firm answer inside, I produced the baby blessings joy. Now, that set of blessings that we have has been unique from the beginning and it classified itself. Nobody has been able to explain why and suddenly it all made sense. That was in a completely different key of music. This was the mercy portion of my spirit. So that was fascinating. And then Mercy's voice became very defensive and as though, don't you dare ridicule me, and said, and the compost pile is mine. Well, I have a huge connection to land, to healing land, taking broken land, making compost. I had no idea that it was the Mercy portion of my spirit that was carrying that love for land and the calling for land. So. That gave us five out of the seven. Eventually, we found that exhorter and teacher were pretty wounded, and there was quite a story in bringing healing and restoration there. But the challenge came with experiencing the difference from one portion to the next, dialoguing with them as separate individuals, because it felt incredibly like DID. And I know DID. I was molested as a child. I was DID. Nobody understood it back then. I was just a rebellious kid that wouldn't do things right. And I knew about switching and knew about all that stuff. I had been healed. And now here I am, walking down a path that is just outrageously similar. I have parts in my spirit and each one has I mean it was just very disturbing but I walked ahead and continued to build relationship with each one observing how I would switch just like we switched with parts from one portion of the spirit to another at different points during the day wondering what this picture would look like. If you want to track that a little bit in the free audio section of our website, there's a set of blessings called Fruit of the Spirit. And those are recorded during that season when I was sorting out the portions of my spirit. Each portion of my spirit decided which one of the Fruit of the Spirit they were going to record the blessings. And you can hear distinctly different tone, different personality, different vocabulary, different emotions for each one of those. So I'm being very public about it, very authentic, very concerned about where this is going, and very aware that it looks, feels, smells an awful lot like DID. Then I happened to go to Texas, Houston, Texas. I was recording a teaching on the redemptive gift of the Mexican nation, and because Mexico was exhorter and... I just assumed that the exhorter portion of my spirit was going to be presenting that night at the hotel. And as I was getting dressed, getting ready to go to the hotel, I heard the unmistakable voice of mercy saying, I am presenting tonight. And I thought, well, alrighty now. Okay, so you're presenting tonight. But what I didn't know is that that afternoon in the hotel, there was the equivalent of what on the soul level we call an integration. 
I couldn't really tell you what happened except that instead of one portion of my spirit stepping to the front, mercy, while the rest watched, it was as though my whole spirit became a carousel that mercy was presenting, but everybody was there at mercy's back providing full support. And I went, I presented, and at the end, the lady that was hosting it, who's known me for years, was stunned. She came up and says, Arthur, I have never heard you like that before. And I'm thinking, of course you haven't. I've never been this way before. <laughs> so it was that amazing transition where my spirit became interconnected. I, to this day, wouldn't say that it was divided or DID, but something happened in that shift from taking turns to who was front to being a one unit that has a variety of different skills. And still, I will rotate the carousel from one to another, depending on what I'm doing. But it's not the same as it was before. So I'm hugely sensitive to the fact that it feels, sounds a lot like DID. I'm very sensitive to the fact that an SRA, some portions of the spirit have been taken into captivity of one sort or another. But at the end of the day, there's still a difference between a fragmented soul that was never intended to be more than one essence and a fragmented spirit that has those seven portions, seven colors of the rainbow built into it. We don't have language to adequately capture the difference. There's an awful lot of similarities, but at the end of the day, in my experience with myself and others, there's a difference. Now, just for consistency, in our culture, we refer to parts of the soul, altars, and portions of the spirit, just so we know what we're talking about. So that's a bit of my journey, very experimental, uh, but the fruit of the difference that I am since that evening in Houston when my spirit came together with mercy in front, mercy presenting, but my whole spirit was engaged in that one, and the people that had known me for a long time knew there was a completely different Arthur out there. And was this a, and you're, I mean, you're being very, very uh, confident that this was actually a very positive shift. Absolutely. Well, okay. And, and is the soul supposed to be in charge or did God design it that ultimately the spirit should be in charge? If we go back to the verse that you referenced for Thessalonians 5.23, it's the most misquoted verse in all of scripture. In our American culture, we typically say body, soul, and spirit. But what the scripture says is spirit, soul, and body. And God intended us to nurture the spirit first. But in our culture, we nurture the body in the womb. You work on the soul after the baby's born, teach it to smile. And somewhere around three or four years old, we start teaching a child's spirit. And that's why we end up with a 40-year-old who has a soul the size of a sumo wrestler and a spirit the size of a stick figure. I believe God intended our spirit to be in charge, and he proves that in the design of the body. For example, there's a very well-known secular book called The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, Thomas Fernie. 
he collected a bunch of studies from doctors around the world to address the issue of cognition in the baby in the womb. Now here's the issue. Every nerve is an electrical conductor and it has insulation around it. If you put two bare wires together, they're gonna short out. You have to have them insulated so that they only conduct electricity from tip to tip when you put them together. And that myelin sheath around our nerves doesn't really develop until just before birth and then for the next 18 months, the nerves in our brains are getting insulated so that they can function tip to tip. So for years, there was this standoff between the medical community and the therapeutic community. The doctors would say a child cannot think, a child cannot feel. It is impossible for a child to think and feel because the nerves don't have a myelin sheath. You know, the electrical pathways in the brain are shorting out. They can't think, they can't remember. Therapists would say, buddy, we can give you hundreds of stories of babies that have accurate memory of what went on in the womb, especially during birth. So this standoff was unresolved. Thomas Verney documented it in his book in a particularly brutal way. Let me say up front, I absolutely do not agree with what was done. I'm simply reporting the reality of the experiment. I think this doctor ought to be removed from practice. But he was an OB, and he would personally do the ultrasounds for moms. He would do them as slowly as possible and just slow down the entire tempo of the room. He would slow down his voice, make it monotone, slow down the wand, and we just keep moving the wand gently, talking in a monotone to the mother until the baby was completely still. Then without changing his tone of voice or the speed of his hand, he would say to the mother, I have bad news for you. It looks as though your child has died. Like I say, I don't think that should be permitted. 100% of the cases, 100%, for a secular doctor and a secular test, the children began to move vigorously to punch their mother in the stomach and to say, hey mom, I'm alive, don't listen to that liar, I'm perfectly fine. And his point, and this is what the doctor expected, his point was that these babies who were pre-verbal would understand not just that he was speaking, but that he was speaking about them and what the implications were of that baby being believed to be dead by the mother. So he presents all this data but has no solution for it. I have a solution for it. The baby's soul is dependent on the brain. Your soul is like software, the brain is like hardware. If you have a computer without the software, the program, it's not gonna go anywhere. If you have the software in your hand and no computer, it's not gonna do you any good. But the software of the soul will run on the hardware of the human brain. But your spirit does not need the hardware. Your spirit has an existence that is apart from the hardware. It is capable of acting on the hardware if it needs to. The spirit can communicate with our brain, our mouth, whatnot, but it's not dependent on the hardware. So my point is that God has given the spirit a nine-month head start on the soul to be in charge and to run operations, and that's why we do so much ministry to babies in the womb. We can speak to the spirit of a baby in the womb, nurture that spirit, so that by the time the child's spirit is born, it is vigorously in charge, and the soul never has a chance to catch up. The soul subordinates to the spirit, the spirit subordinates to God, and the body subordinates to the spirit and to the soul, 
and you have a properly aligned human being, when we begin, or we're supposed to begin, in the womb, ministering to the spirit of the child. That is brilliant. I I don't even know how many people are going to be listening to this like, I wish someone did that for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This is the thing. You know, I like to think about 1 Corinthians uh, 6, which, I mean, it's very clear. It says, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Mm -hmm. And it's the the idea that if you're going to have a part of you that is truly supposed to be in charge, it's going to be the part that is closest to the spirit of the Lord. That's our spirit. That's our spirit band. That's the inner man that is regenerated. I mean, that, that so, um, this, that was, everything you had to say was just really, really, really great. And I also wanted to say the carousel example I love. And, and Arthur, I'm going to be very uh, just blunt. Um, Understanding that the human spirit can rotate has revolutionized my ability to minister. Mm-hmm. And this is why. For survivors and people that have dissociative identity disorder, they cope with different circumstances out of different parts of themselves many times that have been split through trauma, but they, they're accommodated to uh, dealing with certain, you know, uh, Situations, right? So, if a person's Absolutely. in a state of abuse, like they have a um, a, a, f- a physical abuser, there's a, the same part that keeps coming out to take the physical abuse when it begins, and when it ends, a different part comes out to go to school, and mm-hmm. so there's this learned ability to cope with life. When I began to learn to use uh, lean on my spirit, um, the different portions of my spirit could come forward under different circumstances without me having to dissociate. So if I need to step into that place where I need some black-white thinking on an issue and a very straightforward and concise engaging of a scenario, my, my prophet, that portion of my spirit can rotate forward and yet, when I need to shift and be very gentle or kind, that, that mercy portion of my spirit can rotate to the front. And I can live out of that place in me. And it actually maximizes my ability to engage life without the need for dissociation. Exactly. Just like the child that has been, or the adult that has been integrated can still go to school the academic part that used to go to school is now a part of their whole it just works better let me add two other components to the whole spirit soul did issue my model says that the human spirit is a better healer than the human soul when my soul is working with the broken parts of your soul, it's viable, but it's less efficient. If I can train your spirit to minister to your soul, which is the natural order of things, it goes much, much quicker. And we have individuals on their journey that consult with their spirit before going to sleep and say, okay, tonight 
I need you to go to this system and bring these parts into Jesus' presence to deal with the pain, so on and so forth. They go to sleep, and during the night, their spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, have partnered for healing of some parts in a fraction of the time that it would take a counselor to go soul to soul with each of the individual parts. Again, I'm not a counselor. I'm a businessman. I like to get the job done. And if the human spirit can get the job done much faster than my soul on your soul, then from a sheer efficiency point of view, have at it, man. Hmm. <laughs> we also have a good capacity for the human spirit to rescue a part that has just emerged. So you're in the middle of work, and some salesman on the phone uses a phrase that triggers you badly. You have a part you didn't know about that pops to the front. Instead of having to white-knuckle it through the day until you can get home and call your therapist, we ask the servant portion of the spirit to go find that part and bring the part to a safe place, and in five or ten minutes the crisis is over, and you can carry on your work without the white-knuckle factor. It's just the natural work of the spirit is to lead. natural work of the spirit is to heal the soul, and we're simply allowing it to do what God designed it to do rather than continuing to limp along with our souls being primary when they're not supposed to be. Okay, now, we kind of danced around this, but I want to just ask you to address it head on. Sure. Some may suggest that ministering to different portions of the human spirit, particularly in a survivor, promotes refragmentation. In other words, question, isn't the journey supposed to be towards wholeness? Therefore, why would you encourage a person to harbor different facets or parts of themselves? And we're using portions of the spirit to be clear, but we're, you know, asking this question from, from a various vantage points, right? Um, mm -hmm. I, of course, disagree because, as I've already discussed, we've been dancing around this. I think seven portions of spirit is design, but I want to hear your straightforward answer to this question. Why isn't it refragmentation? Okay. Let's go back to your specific word, refragmentation. My answer is very simple. It's already fragmented. In other words, in SRA, the single biggest barrier that the demonic has is the human spirit. The human spirit has that God orientation to it. Why have so many tens of thousands of people come out of high-level programming and SRA back into Christianity is because of their pesky spirit. And if the occult could just get rid of our spirit, then they could do their mischief, but they can't. So they have to fragment the spirit, they have to marginalize it, send parts to outer darkness, there's all sorts of different things they do, but the fragmentation is done by the dark side in the spirit before they do stuff in the soul. It's so necessary. So I'm not refragmenting anybody. I'm just identifying the fragments, the portions of the spirit, nurturing them, and trying to bring them back into proper alignment. I have never yet found a single survivor that had all seven portions of their spirit present, period, never mind, aligned. So we begin by just doing a simple roll call. Uh, 
prophet, are you able to come to the front? Servant, teacher, exhorter, giver, ruler, mercy. We go through the seven. And most of the time, there's only one portion present. And more often than not, it's going to be the servant portion. The servant portion is the one with the highest level of endurance, highest tenacity, and the one able to go the furthest, go the distance. And the servant also is the most compliant to the survivors. So I start with the servant portion. I'm going to build it up. It's already there. I'm not fragmenting it. It has already been fragmented. And then the question is, which of the other portions of the spirit is nearby? There's a variety of different constructs, but I'm going to ask servant, well, who do you want to go after next? Well, ruler's not too far away. Great. So can you go get ruler? Can you bring that portion back? Or do we need the help of Jesus Christ to set him free? And one by one, I'm bringing back the portions of the Spirit that have been divided out by SRA, that have been marginalized by SRA, bringing them to safe staging area. We ask Jesus to clean them up one at a time, heal, restore, etc. And when the entire seven portions are there, then we move towards establishing them in their permanent locations. So to me, the question is refragmentation. Nobody's refragmenting them. They were fragmented by SRA, just putting them back together. So I know it's a hot topic for some people. For me, I don't get the debate. We're not refragmenting the soul. We're not refragmenting the spirit. We're putting back together what the bad guys did. What am I missing? Coach me here. I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm just saying I haven't found the problem yet. Well, amen. Amen. And thank you for saying that. You know, I find that... um, what it requires in order to um, really take issue with what's happening when it when you begin to get into ministry to the human spirit is is willful it, it's just a willful dismissing of what's clearly in front of you because the moment that you begin to do what you just said or what I have done calling forth different portions of the spirit and having such a consistent response in person after person after person, whether they understand what's happening or not, you can't dismiss that. And people are receiving a revolution in their lives, in their ability to walk with God as they receive ministry to their human spirit. I'll, I'll tell you the truth, Arthur. When my spirit is forward and I go into worship, it's different. Mm-hmm. I move into that place where it says, the Lord is spirit and is now seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Agreed. When my spirit isn't forward for whatever reason, worship is not the same. It's, it's ritual. It's religion. When my spirit is up, it's encounter. It's amazing. I understand. I'd like to backtrack for a moment, just touch on a couple of things. First of all, the um, willing rejection. Um, Yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I'd like to take a little bit broader view. We say every single effect has a cause, always. You see a baseball up in the air, there's an arm, there's a bat, there's a pitching machine somewhere. And when an individual is rejecting any particular truth, there's a reason. 
there's always a reason. It's it's a fear-based reason, a confusion-based reason. So I am very respectful of the fact that somebody is passionately committed to a particular position that I don't agree with. And to argue with that position is pointless because we have to get down to the root issue of what is so scary about that position. Remember my first response. Here I was with close, trusted friends. The Spirit of God came on me. I ministered. The life of God flowed to his first. What was my first response? Don't you ever tell anybody about this. Sheer fear. I'm not sure what I was afraid of, but it was fear. Now, God had to deal with that over time. I became comfortable with it, as you can tell, but I'm very respectful of people that are deeply rejecting what I'm saying, because it's not really what I'm saying. There's something there, deeper, something behind that we have to go after, or leave alone. So there's that piece. The second piece is that I go back many, many times to John chapter 9. Jesus healed the man who was born blind. He did it deliberately to pick a fight with the scribes and Pharisees. They rose like a trout, and they hauled the guy in and say, what happened? He said, da-da-da, healed on the Sabbath. They said, this is obviously heresy. And the guy pushed back and said, guys, um, you know, from time immemorial, nobody born blind has been healed. Uh, maybe this is God. And I said, no, you don't understand. We are theologians, and you're dumb. And theologically, we understand that this is wrong. He pushed back and says, guys, really? Um, I can see. Did, did you notice? I can see. How can that be wrong? They said, well, we're going to solve this real simply. You are excommunicated because you're wrong and you're dumb, because we're smart. And they kicked him out. But the bottom line is, even though he was excommunicated, he could still see. And at the end of the day, Jesus said, by their fruit shall you know them. And you and I have walked with an awful lot of people and experienced the measurable, verifiable, sustained change in their life, whether we're dealing with a baby in the womb or dealing with an ordinary middle-class person or dealing with somebody who's been chewed up and spit out by the devil. We've seen measurable, verifiable, sustained change. And at the end of the day, I'm not a theologian. I can't defend a lot of what I do with Greek and Hebrew and parts of speech and so on and so forth. Um, I'm a researcher. I'm a businessman. We try something. It works. It works 10 times in a row. And we say, hmm, pretty good. And we run with it. So from a very, very earthy, pragmatic point of view, we got some people that were chewed up. We minister their spirit. It transformed them, measurable, verifiable, sustained change. I think it's a good thing. I really don't think the devil is putting people's spirits back together so they can worship God better, freer. It's probably God, you know? So from a very primitive defense, I say, look at the fruit all around the world. Our book, Blessing Your Spirit, has been translated into several languages, and people of every walk in life have experienced transformation. Something's happening, and it's pretty hard to label all that good stuff the work of the enemy. Let me ask you this. Shoot. This is where we're going to take another step forward here. Okay. Mm. Have you run into 
wandering spirits and spirits in various regions of captivity and how has that played out can you define wandering spirits a little bit more hmm. okay so here, here, here's an example means. here's an example because all right so i i'm sitting there right and i say um i want to talk to so-and-so's exhorter Mm-hmm. Is so and so as an exhorter present? Hmm. Uh, no. Okay. Holy Spirit of Truth, I pray that you would tell this individual where is so and so's exhorter? Their childhood home. Why are they in their childhood home? Like that. And say that the person is actually in a university where they're presently going to school. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I'm right. referring to. Yep. Let me put a bigger frame around it. If a spirit isn't present when we do the first roll call, there are typically three reasons. Number one is that the enemy has moved that portion of spirit to outer darkness, the dimensions. Second, the enemy has imprisoned that spirit. It's somewhere in the region, but um, locked down. Third is that the rest of the human spirit has scapegoated that spirit. In other words, that spirit is so toxic, so wounded or defiled or under covenant with the enemy or whatever, that the rest of the spirit said, you know, we're better off without you. It's kind of like amputating a leg that's got gangrene from some wound that didn't heal. That's very harsh, but they send that portion of the spirit away and it goes to a place of its choice, sometimes near, sometimes far. So within that broad framework, there's a variety of different configurations as to where a portion of the spirit could be when it's not where it belongs. Got it. So in short, the answer is yes. Certainly, yes. I've never found anybody with all the portions of their spirit present on the first round. How, how does this make, how do you understand this? Because this, this is revolutionary for a lot of people to hear. Like, you know, the, the mm, what we would like to believe is that your spirit is in your body and that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Very um, convenient. Okay. Well, I, you know, I have a certain way that I've begun to understand this phenomena, but I really want to hear yours. I don't. I don't understand it. Again, um, I rub shoulders with a lot of counselors. And the year that we first released this teaching, I did 40 seminars across the U.S., so I've stood in front of an awful lot of people, everybody from a prayer minister in a church to a psychiatrist, and answered all these questions. And very simply, I can't explain a whole lot of this stuff, but I can follow cause and effect. Let's take a simpler picture. I walk in a room. There's a bump on the wall by the door about 48 inches off the floor. 
I have enough experience to know that that's probably a light switch. I wiggle it, the light comes on in the ceiling. And I don't have to understand the physics of uh, electromagnetic force field rotating around the magnet, all that kind of stuff. I just know that you do X, you get Y. There's a cause-effect relationship. And when I find anybody that's in deliverance or in inner healing that tries to reduce what they're doing to the level of something they can understand, it becomes a very, very small picture. And there's much of what we do that I don't understand, much of what we do that absolutely offends my Sunday school theology that I grew up with and was told was absolutely perfect. And I have to test and test and test. Is this God? Is this the enemy? Is this a deception? Is this a delusion? Is the enemy setting me up with three in a row that are really a falsehood in order to get me to buy into something that isn't true? That question is always with me. But there's a lot of stuff that I can't explain or understand or find a reason for, but when it's consistent to the second and third generation of people out from me, then I say, well, um, the fruit's good and the action is consistent. I guess I'm going to run with it, even though I don't understand. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. Um, at the end of the day, what I can say is, you know, this is something that I've had to run into, and um, others as well that begin to, you know, follow suit are running into this. And, and you know, what I find is is that as I've begun to minister to people's spirits, I mean, th this is so often the case. the The enemy has moved to lock people's spirits down. Mm -hmm. and enthrone the soul upon lie-based philosophies. Absolutely. And God is moving to release the human spirit and empower us in our spirits with his Holy Spirit to make us a heavenly company and connect us to the fact that we are citizens in heaven from which we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know. And I, honestly, I want to be real honest with you, Arthur. I, I currently believe that, you know, as the body of Christ begins to walk out into deeper revelation, understanding of what it means to walk in full partnership and cooperation with our spirits, as in, you know, spirit and soul, hand in hand, with the spirit in charge, taking the lead, executing our assignments in the earth, we are moving to another level as the body of Christ. It, I agree. It is the next level of operational capacity. Um, as a matter of fact, and, and I want to, I want to, I you know, let, let me just take one step yeah. back before okay. you go to the next level. Um, there's many people that disagree with me. Some disagree with me violently. And my response across the board is this. Look, develop your own theology of the human spirit. There's 100 verse, 100, there are 150 verses in Scripture. Go look them up. Build your theology and live according to that theology, but don't bag on my theology when you don't have a theology of the human spirit. Don't be reactionary. So go to the book, build out your own theology, but the reality is you who are fussing at me have not sat down with a piece of paper and looked at all 150 verses ever, not even once, much less 
put in thousands of hours of ministering. So I just challenge people on an integrity basis, do the work, come to your own conclusion, but don't argue with experience from a position of ignorance. Get the book, come to your own conclusion, build your theology, run with it, and I have profound respect for anybody who is presenting a broadly reasoned biblical position that disagrees with me. I'm good with that. I'm not good with lazy ignorance. You don't have a right to fuss at me because I've put in the hours. Is that fair? <laughs> don't argue with experience from a position from ignorance. Uh, that's a bumper sticker. No, it's not ignorance. Lazy ignorance. Oh, my gosh. Everybody's ignorant, but when you choose <laughs> to be ignorant out of laziness, um, sorry, you've just lost any credibility with me. Got it. Uh, let, let me come back to this, Arthur. Sure. Um, okay. So now that we've talked about um, you know some some of this idea of the, you know um, getting the human spirit set free, because because this is so important. Um, what are some of the tools, some of the, you know, how-tos, the so-whats, the uh, how-tos that you have found are most effective in helping people get free so that their whole spirit is able to work the way God intended? Hmm. Well, you just opened up another four-hour session there. <laughs> well, we may have to have you back, but go ahead. Okay. So I'm going to squash this all down to the Cliffs Notes. As you can imagine, being a DID kid in a world that didn't know DID, I was a black sheep of the family very early on, and I learned to hate the word holiness because holy was a club that they used to beat me over the head, and I was sure I would never be. Eventually I decided that I needed to look into this when I was about 40 and see what the word really meant. And I was shocked to discover that holiness is a sequence of five. The first thing that God made holy was time. Seventh day of creation, he sanctified the time. Time wasn't in negative numbers. He took it from zero, moved it into some serious plus numbers. There's a whole theology. There's no other usage of the Hebrew word for holy in the book of Genesis. Shocking. The picture of holiness, all over the place, but not the word. The second thing that God made holy was land, holy ground. Moses, burning bush. Third thing that he made holy was human community. Nation of Israel, Passover, and the whole nation was sanctified that night. The fourth thing was our birthright. That's the tabernacle of Israel. Everything was anointed with a holy anointing oil as it was put together. And the last thing that we found so far in our paradigm is offices. The office of priest, the office of high priest were sanctified as the people were put in them. So we have these five steps in the sequence of holiness, and most of the time we begin with step number three, human community. Who did what to you, what's your bitterness, so on and so forth. And that leaves us with two bungee cords attached to our legs trying to move forward. And if we would cleanse the trauma bonds to time and the trauma bonds to land first, it would be so much easier to work with the human spirit. I did this once in an extreme case with a lady who was conceived in a ritual and had been to any number of the best practitioners in the nation and she was still stuck in many areas so I got in a car with her drove to the area where the stuff took place and we spent about eight or nine hours one day in 
disconnecting her from the land of all the different places that she remembered or could guess that there had been evil stuff done. We do the same thing with time. The dark realm is hugely dialed into their calendars and the dates and the times and the rhythms and the cadences of iniquity. If anybody's had stuff done out in the forest under the moonlight, that is time-related witchcraft. And when we clean up time and land first, then it's so much easier to clean up the stuff that is related to the human community that has been done. So let's say that I'm just beginning to work with somebody. Servant portion is the only one that's front and center. I'm just going to begin with a very simplistic approach and say, Lord Jesus, what do you want to show me about servant? And then typically I get a cartoon picture. He'll show me something that's wounded or a lie that she believes in or a device of some sort. And we process that with the Lord, the Holy Spirit, Father, as the case may be, until servant's all cleaned up. We just keep going back. Is there anything else you want to show us? Is there anything else? And when Jesus signs off on servant, we're going to um, go next. Let's say servant wants ruler next. So we will ask ruler, can you hear us? And off to the right, you hear, yes, I'm here. Are you captive? Uh, yeah. And then I'll ask the Holy Spirit, why? What is the nature of the captivity that has ruler pinned down? And the answer is typically going to come back one of the three, that it's time or land or community. The one that we know the most about is covenants, all sorts of covenants in SRA. So ruler might be captured because of a generational covenant or a current covenant, or it might be because of defiled land. So let's say ruler isn't nearby, but ruler is in the barn back on the farm from 19-whatever. Well, do you need to be released from the land? Yes. So we bring the blood of Christ, the word of our testimony. We acknowledge that the three things that create the greatest bondage to land or the greatest ties to land are adultery, idolatry, and bloodshed. And it's very likely that two out of three or three out of three took place in some ritual there. We apply the blood of Christ to trump that tie to the land until ruler feels completely free. Then we ask the Lord to bring ruler back now that he's been set free. So that process of finding out whether it's a time-related ceremony or dedicated to some spirit of time, whether it is an attachment to land or something in the human community, using those three tools will help me release each portion of the human spirit that has been extracted from the whole some way or another and restore them back to the staging area where we're working. <laughs> Anything there you want to drill down on or oh. what's your pleasure? Oh. <laughs> I'm just having a great time here. Um, you, you bring up, uh, oh my gosh. Okay. Now, now I might be coming at this from a slightly different angle but I think the two streams actually connect because what I have found is that people have 
well, dissociated parts and even sometimes their spirits that, that are locked in other timelines. Agreed. <laughs> okay, so you've seen that, right? So uh, I know the time thing is real because I've had to, you know, deal with this. And, you know, so when I'm working with the Lord, we'll have the angels or Jesus go into those places and, uh, you know, pull them out. Sometimes, you know, we, we'll collapse them if they're counterfeit timelines. But the 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 thing is, this is a real thing. The land is so so huge. Let me ask you this, Arthur. Um, how far have you gone with this whole redemption of land thing? I mean, wh wh where do you see the Lord taking that in the next decade or two, as far as His plan for redemption? Maybe take it out of the context of single deliverances or whatever. I mean, where do you see this whole land revelation going? Because I'm really curious. Well, land was the first area that uh, the Lord met me. I'm the child of a Central California, San Joaquin Valley uh, migrant farm worker. My grandparents were so poor they couldn't afford the last two letters to the word. And my mom was the first white-collar college graduate in the family's history. She had a mom and dad both had a salary. They had insurance. They had retirement. I mean, it was unbelievable the high levels that they had achieved after the devastation of the Great Depression of my grandparents. They'd escaped being dirt farmers. It was a big deal. And from the time that I was a kid, all I wanted to do was dig in the dirt and make compost and do all those other um, blue-collar kind of things that they thought they'd escaped from. We didn't know at the time, but I had a call to land, and God has led me over the years to develop tools for cleansing defilement on land, but more particularly for releasing the treasure that's in the land. So we look at the redemptive gifts, and I believe that every single piece of land, every single city, has a distinct redemptive gift placed there by God on the seventh day of creation when he brought dry land out of the water. And the simplest way to illustrate this is with the U.S. and Canada. We come from the same rootstock. We come from the same religious stream, roughly. We have governmental systems that are essentially the same. Call it a parliament or a congress. It's the same animal, basically. We share economies. We share air pollution. We share phone systems. And you would think that we would be pretty much clones, but we're not. The United States as a nation is a redemptive gift of profit, and we are constitutionally incapable of minding our own business for six months at a time. We are forever butting into other nations' business when we're not asked for. That's just the profit's sense of justice and all of that. Canada is a mercy nation. They go 100 years at a time minding their own business in the same world that we live in because they've got a different DNA. So to find the DNA of a city, of a state, of a nation, and to partner with God in releasing that DNA and to position ourselves on land that is strategic for the message that we're bringing is very important. So let's go to the whole air psychology. Austria is a mercy nation. Vienna is an exhorter city, a male exhorter city. 
And it's there in Vienna that psychology began. You have Freud, you have Adler, you have Frankel, the three legs of modern psychology. And from that place, on that platform, it went out into the entire world and has been a tremendously transforming force. I understand there's some twistedness here and there, but to have psychology and the healing of the soul is a good thing. So we went back there to Austria, not to Vienna, but to Salzburg, which is a mercy city and a mercy nation, to record in English and German the teaching on SRADID and how to let your spirit lead the soul in the healing process. And doing it on that land, leveraging the treasure in the land, made a very different message than if I'd recorded it in my office or in some other place. So we're learning to not just cleanse land, to remove the defilement that goes deep, deep into the land, but to also call forth the treasures that God has placed in the land. The very first command that he gave mankind was to take the garden to the non-garden part of the world, to fill the world, to live on it, because the treasures that are in the land can only be expressed when there's human community on the land. That's why he wants the world to be populated, because he has placed so many treasures for us, and it takes human community to express them. Most of the time we've trashed the land. God wants us to cleanse it and then to bring forth the treasures that are on the land in the way that he placed them there. That is profound. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. I, I, and I, I think we're going to see a lot more of this uh, in the future. Uh, I want to spend the last bit of this conversation that we have this time coming back to something that you had kind of cracked open but we didn't take time to flesh out and I want to and that's the idea of blessing your baby's spirit mm -hmm. now um, I just want to give you some time to spend a little bit more or take a little bit more uh, freedom to communicate on what the Lord has shown you about the benefits, the reasons, the uh, the necessity of this ministry. All right. Aside from the obvious that he wants our spirit to be in leadership, let's go to Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So we go to the punchline. The word will not return empty. It will accomplish. It will achieve the purpose. Now, what's the cause? The cause is the word being presented as rain and snow. There's a big difference there. We understand that in California. We've been in a five-year drought. The drought is broken. The rain has come. It's filled the reservoirs. And we also have the biggest snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas that we've had in, I think, 25 or 30 years. And there's still two more months of our winter left. And in the springtime, when it gets hot, that snow is going to melt. So here's my point. Rain waters the earth immediately. Snow waters the earth eventually. 
But snow never goes anywhere. It doesn't go away until it melts. It goes away, melts, waters the earth. So God's saying we have two different kinds of input of the word. There's the word that's a rhema word. It's a right now word. It's a word that lands and is alive and waters a dry spot in your spirit, whether you're an adult or a child. On the broader scale, there is the word that is snow. So many sermons we've heard were good, but they didn't go anywhere. They just landed as snow in our minds, built a snowbank, and five years later, 25 years later, there's a moment of heat that melts that snow and it becomes accessible to us as water. So when we are reading scripture to a child, his spirit is not doing anything with it, it's just building a snowbank building a huge snowbank so that later on in life it has that to draw from. So there's a basic foundational principle. If all you do is expose your child to the Word of God, he is building a snowbank for the future, getting a big head start on the soul. But on a pragmatic level, we have found that the choice of blessing that you use for the child makes a whole lot of difference. We had two initial sets of baby blessing CDs, one of joy, one of peace. Some parents ran just one or the other, and it was dramatically different in the child, the, the output, the expression, the way the child faced life from birth on, whether they had joy or peace. Since then, we've become much more sophisticated in our model, and we asked parents to look at the generational strongholds in their family tree. So they look at both sides. They've already done deliverance and are healing for themselves, so they pretty well know that, you know, over here on this family line, there was tremendous greed. On that side, there was arrogance. And over there, there was some uh, moral impurity. So these are the things that have appeared in several generations of the family line. And they've done deliverance. They've done inner healing. But at the end of the day, you can only do deliverance and healing up to zero. After that, you got to grow. And we teach the parents to build a fortress of righteousness. So let's say that the issue in the family line was greed and all of the corruption that goes with greed. We have the parents look at stewardship instead of greed, pull out 300 examples from Scripture of different flavors and colors of righteous stewardship, and we bless the child in the womb with that quality to build a fortress of righteousness that is strong and robust before the child is even born and is the direct opposite of the iniquity that has been so deeply entrenched in the family line. So that facet of redeeming the family tree is one large part of ministering to babies in the womb. The second has to do with birth. There have been some secular studies done on three classes of women in terms of difficulty in childbirth. One is those that love their kids and want them. On the other extreme, those that really don't want to be pregnant. And in the middle, those that are ambivalent. You know, the wife got pregnant because the husband really wanted to see if they could have a son or whatever, ambivalent. And it was no surprise that the loved babies had a much lower level of difficulty in labor and delivery than the unloved ones. What was horrifying to the researchers is that the ambivalent mothers had exactly as much difficulty in trauma as the unloved babies. So the amount of engagement with the child 
before birth that you have, the more it's going to predispose you to a good birth. We are at the point that a lot of our first-time moms are having a labor and delivery that's two or three hours long, minimal trauma, and just a totally different kind of pregnancy than others. Now, you come down to the crisis level, and we tested this with an unwed mother's home. Here you have women with rotten nutrition or none, emotional chaos in their life. Obviously, their souls are not working very well or they wouldn't be out on the street. Uh, Many of them have been doing drugs. So it's a worst-case scenario. And in those homes, babies are very rarely born on time. They're either born way early, sometimes as an intended suicide act by the child. They're trying to be born before they're viable so they die and many times way late because the child jolly well knows there's somebody out there in the world that wanted to kill them once upon a time and an awful lot of the deliveries are very very traumatic when these non-saved women were exposed to the baby blessings for at least a month before childbirth things normalized enormously When the baby's in the womb, knew somebody out there was speaking to them instead of speaking about them, it was a game changer. And the crisis births dropped to just about nothing in that unwed mother's home because of ministry to the baby. One last illustration of this has to do with breech babies. Breech is when the baby's in the wrong position to be born. And if the baby doesn't turn, then you have a C-section. If you have a C-section, there's a lot of implications to that for the woman and subsequent pregnancies. And we have had well over a thousand documented cases of a parent, father, grandmother, grandfather who has ministered to the baby in the womb, able to speak to the baby in the womb and say, Johnny, it's time for you to be born. You're in the wrong position. I need you to turn around, put your head down here, put your bottom up there so that you can come out the proper way. Baby obeys because there's already that bond, that connection between his spirit and the father's spirit, and it saves a C-section a whole lot of mess. So those are just a few snippets of the payoff in ministering to a baby in the womb. The major story is the rest of their life. When a child gets a head start with his spirit way out ahead of his soul, it is a leadership imprint that's unstoppable. These children thrive in life, they overcome difficulties, they have a relationship with God that is dramatic and marvelous, makes a difference in the whole life. Mm, mm, mm. Arthur, that was really great stuff. Really, really great. Folks, um, if you are pregnant, let me tell you, if you go to www.theslg.com, our guest has materials um, about how to bless your baby. And uh, there's a whole host of other materials on his website, um, including the book he referenced, Blessing the Human Spirit, uh, Blessing the Soul. Um, Arthur, do you have any final thoughts before we end this program or uh, maybe other resources you have available that you want to highlight? Well, we've got a lot of resources there, but I'm not going to highlight that. I simply want to add one other word to the equation, which is dignity. In SRA, the deepest, deepest loss is the loss of dignity. 
and our culture is able to give you back honor, and honor is not the same as dignity. Dignity can only come from God to your spirit, and that to me is one of the most significant imperatives for developing the human spirit, growing it to its finest level. When an individual walks in the dignity of knowing that they have a relationship with a God that created that spirit and that is enjoying the beauty of the spirit, it's a game changer for all the rest of your life. I fought hard to come out of a childhood of shame, and I pursued honor, and it was an empty, empty thing. But when I found dignity from the spirit of God to my spirit, it was a game changer. We've got a whole album entitled Shame to Dignity, but the theme of dignity is throughout all of my teaching, and it is rooted in the human spirit. Honor just lands on the soul. Big difference. Mm. Words of wisdom. Folks, our guest has been Arthur Burke, uh, the founder of Sapphire Leadership Group. Again, his website is www.theslg.com. Arthur, it's been a real pleasure having you on the program. I want to thank you very much for your time your insights, um, your walk with the Lord and your faithfulness to all the challenging things he's had you to, you know, dive into, pioneer, articulate. Uh, Until next time, folks, God bless and Godspeed. Discovering the Truth with Dan DeBall is the premier radio program designed to center you on the kingdom of God, to equip you with faith in Jesus Christ, and to unveil the truth behind the lies. This program has been a production of Bride Ministries. You can find us at www.bridemovement.com. At our website, you can contact us, access resources, and support us with donations. We need partners in order to continue to produce our vision, which is to promote unity in the body of Christ worldwide and assist in the creation and development of sheep nations. Partner with us and be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Until next time, God bless and Godspeed. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.